if it's a really big egregious episode is I just burst into tears, right? Like I give myself the permission to weep and wail <laughs> like a tiny little baby, right? And I tell myself, you can, the maximum amount of time you can do that is for one day. One day you can just, I can't deal, go cry, do whatever you want to do. But then after that 24 hours, how are you fixing it? What's the solution? Like, boom, all the tears need to be done. And that's just, that's it. Like, it's not over till it's over. What's up, everyone? And welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined here today by Aisha Dozier, founder and CEO at Bossy Cosmetics. Aisha, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Bethany. It is such a privilege to get this opportunity to chat with you on your podcast. Well, we're absolutely thrilled to have you, Aisha. And as usual, we're going to ask you as our guest, will you tell us a little bit about yourself as we kick off this conversation? We'd love to hear about your background, part of your journey. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you already started with my name, which is my full name is Aisha Fatima Dozier, but everybody calls me Aisha, founder and CEO of Bossy Cosmetics. I'm married to just a really awesome guy. And together we have three children, ages 13, 10, and eight they're three boys, really awesome. So that's the personal side. And then the professional side is, you know, this brand is just four years old. I think we turned four last week. So we are little babies, but sometimes I like to say we try to punch above our weight. Uh, Bossy Cosmetics exists to ignite confidence in women who self-identify as being ambitious. We do that through high-quality cosmetics. We do it through creating topical content. And we do that through now project we're launching called Beauty Meets Wisdom Experiential Services. And as I said, we're four years old, babies in the marketplace. Sometimes it feels like I've been doing this forever. Sometimes it feels like I just started. My background is prior to this for two decades, worked as an investment banker slash finance executive across the world in the US, in UK, in Europe, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia, in Central and South America, working for a bunch of different places had a really wonderful career, really blessed, but you know, along the line of building the family and the work got burned out. So about six, seven years ago, got what I called the best bad news of my life, which was that I was severely hypertensive. And that was kind of like a, okay, lady, let's think about it. What are we doing this work for? What are we living for? What is success? All that stuff. And I kind of wanted to drill down to where I thought the intersection of my purpose and passion was. And that was really about, you know, beauty, but really thinking about women and igniting confidence. And that's how Bossy Cosmetics was born. So that's my story. I want to dig into a couple of different aspects of this story because 
you told it to us in a nutshell, but there's so many amazing moments along the way that, that I would love to shine a light on. One of those conversations that you shared with me in the past is that lots of people actually told you not to start a company, but two people who were really behind you were your husband, who you already sort of lovingly introduced to our audience, and your mom. Can you talk to us about those moments leading up to the decision, I'm going to start this business, and some of that feedback of people who cared about you a lot and worried about you and were counseling you to, you know, not to do it. Like here you are on Wall Street, you know, you've made it. Why would you do this thing? But these two pivotal folks in your life were really in your corner, giving you a lot of affirmation that this was the right path. What was that kind of series of conversations like? It was and remains tricky because you think that, you know, the hardest decision is to start. But the truth is that the, the just every single day is it's hard. Every single day you're presented with so many different things. And obviously, as we know, 2020 was like, you know, the pandemic hit, which I thought we would go out of business. So then there were more decisions about, do you continue? Do you just, you know, go find a real job, quote unquote. But I think when I started this business slightly over four years ago, I was in a very interesting place. So I had left my job as an investment banker, as I said, took a year off and was doing a one-year fellowship at Stanford. I was very lucky to get into this program called Distinguished Careers Institute. It's a fellowship. And I just had the most amazing transformative 12 months on campus. But what ended up happening, which happens to a lot of kind of type A women, is that at the end of it, you know, instead of feeling, oh, this is really great. I got the chance to unlearn, relearn, learn new things, like all of that stuff cracked my mind open and, you know, just amazingly glorious experience. I went from 11 and a half months of that to kind of the last few weeks in this panic mode of you have no trophy. You have nothing to show. Yeah, you've got a certificate, but like what's next? You've just spent two decades, you know, working at Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley, all these like, you know, places that are fancy on the business cards. And here you are now in another fancy place, right? Stanford, but you're graduating with no plan. Like You're going into the abyss. And I just was not used to that. And I felt like I needed another trophy. I needed an award or something to show, you know, that I was worthy. And I had a really interesting conversation with a friend that I shared this vulnerability with her. And she said to me, one of the most beautiful things anyone's ever said to me, she said to me, Aisha, but you are the trophy. And that really completely just turned my whole perspective of life and success and everything on its head. And then I just stripped down to what do you think you were born to do? Like, what do you think you could do and you would do every day and it wouldn't be like work? What would you do if you didn't have to think about money? And not to say that I had an endless supply of money, but if I just took money away as the focus. And I just, I loved color. You know, I loved just talking to ambitious women. You know, a few months before that, I had worked on this project called African Her Story, where I'd interviewed a bunch of successful African women, just talking about their various careers. And some of the threads that connected across all of the different industries, women cared about how they looked, even, you know, notwithstanding that they were brilliant and successful, but we all had a lot of the similar things. Like how do you balance work and life? And, you know, how do you think about that promotion? How do you get coaching services? How do you get a board of directors? How do you get on a board? All that stuff. So I became obsessed with just wanting to really dig into supporting women in that way, but I didn't want to do it in a very traditional way. 
which is why I often tell people that Bossy Cosmetics is a women's empowerment mission-driven company that masquerades as a beauty company. So we sell beauty products. That's how we stay in business. But really the whole notion, if you look at our, our products are named confident, ambitious, inspiring, elegance meets strength, beauty meets drive. Like everything is about empowering women, igniting confidence, and just telling you go out there and surpass your goals. That's how this came to be. But you know, I can tell you this now because I've told the story a billion times. When I first started thinking about it, it just didn't sound sensible, right? To a lot of people. I would talk to people who I thought were really smart and I would say, this is what I'm thinking. I want to create a beauty product company, but what it's going to do is it's going to really excite women. And I had all these ideas and everybody was like, that doesn't make any sense. You're not a celebrity. You're not an influencer. There are already trillions of people making lipsticks. Like you bring no value to the table with this idea. And I have to tell you, it was really soul crushing (laughs) to get this feedback because I was so pumped about it. So excited about it. I really thought that I existed at that intersection of my purpose and passion and that I was built to do this. And so to hear so many, quote unquote, smart people say, dumb idea, there's a better use for your time, right? In tech or finance or whatever. You know, I talked to my mom and my husband who are in my inner corner. And both of them who know me, of course, exceedingly well, were like, you should do it. You were young for this. Like you are uniquely placed to do this thing that you're not completely sure about yourself, but the insights are so unique, go out there and explore it. You can do it. Both of them were just, I mean, like beside themselves with support. And that was the thing that carried me forward because everybody else, nobody thought it made sense. I love this story so much because it is so much easier to say no. It is so much easier to poke holes and to tear down than it is to have the courage to go after something that you really Mm -hmm. care about, that excites you. Mm -hmm. Even your tone of voice and the energy that you have in reflecting on that story, it was so clear when you talked about loving culture or or color Mm -hmm. and loving the whole idea and purpose of supporting women and empowering women. You just, I could see that this gives you a sense of flow. And Mm -hmm. to have people who Mm -hmm. love you and be behind you in that moment, I think is just so critically important for entrepreneurs at that juncture of like, do I actually take this leap? And it's amazing that you had those folks in your corner. Yeah, no, I'm really, really blessed. And then I had a few other friends who were like, okay, (laughs) you know, they saw that I was doing this anyway, whether they supported it or not. You know, and then I just got going, to be honest with you. I think I'm one of those people. I don't know if I would say I'm impulsive because I can't ruminate for a while over something. But once I kind of have that gut feeling of I'm supposed to do this, I'll just do it. And this is why I think I really flourished in the design school at Stanford because I just feel like, you know, go out and give something a try. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, learn, right? There is no failure. Failure is not doing it at all. And so then I became so just emotionally charged and vested in try this out. Everyone thinks it's stupid, but what will you lose? And then Mm -hmm. I realized I had nothing to lose at that point. So I went for it. A related topic in an interview with Forbes, you were really interested in what it means to have economic power beyond helping men have that power. That was your quote. Mm -hmm. And I think this is obviously related to empowering women and being really focused on that as part of your mission at Bossy Cosmetics. 
But will you unpack that statement a little bit more for us? What did that mean for you? Well, I feel a, a very sort of unbridled sense of agency right now in that, okay, I had this great career, in the end, always reported to a man and always worked for a man to look great, right? And not physically. I mean, like I reported to the CEO and, you know, when my business unit did really well, we in the business team would be really excited, but the CEO was the guy we were working for. And that's great. CEO takes the fall when things don't go well, but also, you know, gets the kudos when things go well. But I always felt like I was always working for somebody else. I was always working to make a man look great. I was always trying to be something that a man would pat on my head and say, good job, I shall give me a great review. I got to a point in my career where I felt like, why are there not more women CEOs? Why are there not more women on boards? Why are there not more women in quarters of power? Why are we always in this sort of support function? And don't get me wrong, I was in a very senior support function, so it is a privilege issue. But across all of corporate America, this is an issue. I don't even know if I wanted to dismantle it, but I wanted to be the exception and then start to see other people become the exception. And I did start to see, and I started to see women on boards, women CEOs, women chairing boards, women doing all sorts of things. And I just would be like, well, why her? Why can't it be me too? And that's when I became really, I think I was a really good contributor always in all the businesses I ran for other people, but I wanted to always be the one directing the way. And I, I wanted to change that perspective. And so I knew that when I had finished my fellowship, the idea of going to work for a traditional tech company or even, you know, like a Google or an Apple, which is like a dream come true for most people, no matter how senior I was, I was still going to be working for someone else. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be one of the women who is changing the power structure in this country. I love it. Can we talk about changing the power structure through cosmetics? And you said even in this conversation that Bossy Cosmetics is about women's empowerment. It's a mission-driven business that masquerades as a beauty company. And that comment really resonated with me. There was a moment soon after COVID hit where we were all moving from an in-person experience of work to a remote experience of work. And I remember sharing with my team that I still put my perfume on every day, even though no one else noticed. It helped me stay centered on myself and in my confidence. And so I really resonated with that description of your company, but would love to hear you just unpack it a little bit more of, you know, cosmetics being the route toward empowerment and confidence and how you stay centered in that mission. Before the pandemic, clearly, I felt this very strongly. And you have to think about the the timing of this company. We literally launched on International Women's Day, so March 8th, 2019. And then in under a year, very shortly under a year, the world shuts down, right? And I had felt very strongly because across, as I said, I'd worked on that project called African Her Story, interviewed a lot of women on air and off air, and just knew that sort of the wellness and self-care process for women really had a lot of beauty regimen as part of it, right? Spas, putting on nail polish, putting on lipstick, putting on your face, which we call war paint, or, you know, really accessorizing, which I call battle gear, right? It's always been a process for women. 
to go out into the world and to show up, right? And our mission statement is empowering women to look, feel, and do good. And so I knew very clearly that there was that nexus between how you look, how you feel, and how you show up. And then pandemic hits, and I'm like, okay, now everyone's wearing masks, nobody's going out of their house, you know, this business is dead. But then what women started to show us is that even on Zooms, as we all sort of transition to being on Zooms as you and I are now, people wanted bright lipsticks. People wanted to still wear eyeliner. People still wanted to indulge themselves in that sort of self-care ritual with these beauty products that could be putting on your nails. And then people were getting creative with nail art, with lip art, with eyeliner, with eyeshadow, with hair. I mean, it didn't end. In fact, our business, our base business doubled in the pandemic. And that's when I realized there's something here. And I've always said, if I just am selling lipsticks just because it's a pretty color, that's it. That's not really exciting for me. Everything about the process, naming the color, deciding the color, what's the packaging? Like on our packaging now, it says, may this lipstick serve as war paint to serve as, as an impetus to surpass your goals and more. Like we put affirmations on our packaging. Our earliest packaging had things like, you are awesome. You are beautiful. You can do it. So for me, it's always been this mission and this purpose in addition to you beautifying yourself. And the pandemic really hit it home for me. If I didn't know it before, which I did, I knew that beauty is an intricate part of the way women build themselves up and show up. I love this so much. And I love the description of our makeup as war paint. Cause that is like, I have experienced it that way too. When I'm approaching something difficult, when I'm approaching something where I need confidence and it is a ritual, you know, just getting geared up for whatever that step is. So I think that lands for me. I have an unformed question for you, but I, I wanted to just explore it a little bit. A lot of what you're talking about is the woman who is applying her own makeup for herself. As I described to you, you know, I put my perfume on for myself. No one else would have been aware in this remote environment that I was wearing perfume. But there's also an element of what it does to people who view that woman. And so like for you today, you are blonde today. You have this fantastic blonde shade going on. When I talked to you a month ago, you were not blonde. I got on with you today. I was like, damn, that looks so good, you know? And it's just like fierce and cool and creative and fabulous. Do you ever think about it from that lens as well? Like the story that you are telling to the world and how it can be uplifting and inspiring to the person who is your counterpart? Absolutely. I mean, the permission to be audacious, right? Yeah. I mean, when I was a more junior banker, I would not have had blonde hair. I didn't have the courage to be this sort of bright, right? I had on like a black suit with a white shirt and kind of very demure. And then you show up, let's say, to a client's office or you meet a, a senior female banker and she comes in and she's wearing the most gorgeous red dress with pearls, with red lipsticks and beautiful earrings. And she's brilliant, by the way. Like she's just knocking the ball off the cover on all the technical stuff, but she just looks amazing. That is permission. You know, to be able to see what you can be is really mind-boggling. And I think for me, I had a few instances where I was like, wait, and then I became that instance for other people. When I became very senior, 
it would have been rare to find me in a black suit, just rare. I preferred dresses. I preferred really nice high heels. I had very long hair. I would wear these long wigs. I was always incredibly professional. My clients loved working with me, but I decided to write the playbook on how you had to look to show up, even to board meetings. I show up with my blonde hair now. It's not about what's on my head. It's about what's inside here. And that keeps growing and getting better and better. Forget about what's on the outside. And so that is 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 very empowering for myself, but also very empowering for other people to see me and say, oh my God, there is a Black woman who sits on a public board, CEO of her own company, and she just shows up. Maybe I too can do that. So Aisha, you and I know that my teammate, Anne Ernst, is here. She's listening in on this conversation. She just texted me and said, I'm obsessed with her. <laughs> so it is so awesome to hear your story. It's having exactly the effect that you intend to have. And at the same time, here we are. We've gone through a pandemic. We've gone through all kinds of social justice issues. We have gone through gun violence. We've gone through a recession. You and I were just talking about Silicon Valley Bank's failure and some of the knock-on effects that that has on entrepreneurs and founders. And like at the same time that as an entrepreneur, you're going after this audacious goal, there is a lot of rejection and there is a lot of failure. You know, you were talking about like, that wasn't the only hard decision I had to make. Every single day presents a hard decision. Can you talk to us about resilience? Talk to us about your tools that you grab for the tactics that you use to navigate through some of the harder moments, you know, where you, you get knocked around a little bit, which is a really common and frequent experience of entrepreneurship and founding a new company. Oh my God. The only thing that is sure as a founder is failure. <laughs> the mm-hmm. only thing that is, I think being a founder is the craziest thing ever. Like people are like, oh my God, you have so much courage. You're so brave. I'm like, yeah, that's basically I've been crazy. Because you are guaranteed to fail. The question is, what are you going to do when you fail? Are you going to pivot? Are you going to take the learnings from that failure and, you know, craft it into success? You know, mistakes are guaranteed, but are you going to keep making the same mistake? Are you not going to learn from the mistake? So I think that this, it's like building a muscle, right? As you keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, the muscle rips, but then it begins to rebuild itself. And that's what's happening. And that's basically the definition of resilience and grit. As an entrepreneur, I mean, wow, I've made so many mistakes that have cost us egregious amounts of money. I have faced two lawsuits, <laughs> you know, in the four years of this company. I've had, I mean, I've picked the wrong 3PL. I have had, you know, a failed delivery with QVC. I mean, it just on and on and on and on. And the first thing I do if it's a really big egregious episode is I just burst into tears, right? Like I give myself the permission to weep and wail (laughs) like a tiny little baby. Right. And I tell myself, you can, the maximum amount of time you can do that is for one day, one day you can just, I can't deal, go cry, do whatever you want to do. But then after that 24 hours, how are you fixing it? What's the solution? Like, boom, all the tears need to be done. And that's just, that's it. Like it's not over till it's over. And I keep telling you in 2020, literally in April, we were served a cease and desist order 
from some small company who themselves are now out of business. That was my first lawsuit, right? And my first thing was, you know what? Shut it down. Pandemic is here. Nobody's buying makeup. Why go through a, a crazy lawsuit? This is pointless. But I fought it. You know, later in that year, got papers from Hugo Boss, a multi-billion dollar company suing me too, right? I mean, oh my God, the stories are endless. There have come so many moments, but I think that the beauty of resilience, and that's why I gave the example of the muscle, is that, you know, when I first got that lawsuit, I can never forget getting the served papers and opening it and crumbling, right? Crumbling and just like, oh my God, all my hard work, all my capital. And of course, I have now put in a quarter of a million dollars in products that are, I don't know where they are because nobody in China is working. Nobody in Northern Italy is working. So my money is gone. I have this lawsuit. I thought it was over. And after you cry, then you kind of build up. You then get into this thing of, okay, right? And so when eight months or 10 months later, you get a lawsuit from Hugo Boss, it's bigger, but you've already done the crime. You know what I mean? Like you cried 10 months ago. So you're like, okay, got to call the lawyer again. I know what to do. The playbook is clear. What are our chances? What can we do? What is the da 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 right? So Every time you get a new blow, crumble and cry. But if you get a different type of blow in the same area, you're like, let's go. We're going to fight this. Oh my God. I love this so much. I interviewed Jay Kreps, who's the CEO of a company called Confluent. And he said, if you are starting a company for the glamour, <laughs> you know, because it looks so sexy on the outside, like, no, it is just kind of an exercise in humility and getting knocked oh. down and finding a oh. way to bounce back. Constantly. Yeah. I mean, as you can see, I have no makeup, haven't even combed my hair. This is how I look 90% of the time. You know, I have an event, uh, we're opening a JCPenney store in Hayward. So of Yay. course my hair will be done. My makeup will be done. <laughs> I'll be all dressed up. And so people will see that on social and think, oh, they have, but they don't know half the time I'm in my Cochapaxi sweater. I'm in my Lululemon pants. And yes. I haven't combed my hair and I'm behind my, I'm working all day. Like, yeah. where are my good shit? Who has this? What is that? It's not a glamorous life, mm-hmm. but it is a very fulfilling, beautiful, yes. privileged life. I feel yes. so much privileged to have founded this business, to be running this business, to have this business thrive, for it to be in the nation's oldest retailer mm-hmm. in 600 doors. You know, it's still, I don't think I properly digested that this is happening, but it's, it's not glamorous, but it is beautiful. It's amazing. And I'm really glad that you shared that like 24 hour, I get to cry period. Cause I think that this is so important. I think it's so important to allow yourself to be human when it's really hard and to be surrounded by people who can pick you up too in those moments, hold up the mirror, remind you who you are. I recently (laughs) said to my husband, you know, also crazy about, I was like, Michael, I feel like I need to tell you, you've married a loser. (laughs) I was just in one of those spirals, you know? And when you're in it, like I was in it and I was feeling it. And I also had the enormous privilege of being able to turn to a trusted, loving person and yeah. essentially say, I need your help climbing out of this. Yeah. Like, this is just really yeah. hard in this moment. Yeah. And I think we do a disservice to the narrative of entrepreneurship in this country if we don't 
shine a light on what it actually takes, you know, and how hard it actually is and how important it is to have people around you who can help you keep going in those hard moments. Absolutely. Thankfully, I've come away from the stage of shut the business down, shut the business down. Yeah. But I'm definitely in the phase of asking myself, do you know what you're doing? And then responding (laughs) to myself, "Uh, no, (laughs) right? Definitely in the phase of you need some help. You know, I think when we started, I'm not exaggerating, like the colors of lipsticks, I ordered maybe 50 of each color. I mean, it was so tiny. Mm. I was shipping them myself from my house. And, you know, now we're doing pallets and pallet shipping from Europe, but it was, it was a different level then. The business that I started four years ago and the business mm. that I'm running now, they're not the same. They just have the same mm-hmm. name, but everything is different. And so yeah. I'm now having to pull on different resources for myself. I'm having to look for people to come and join the team because mm-hmm. I want people who are smarter than me in particular areas that are really critical for the business's growth. Mm. It's very hard. Work finding people is hard. Training people is hard. And Everything is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything is hard. Everything. Finding capital. Oh my God. When I first started, could not get anybody to give me one red cent, right? Mm. So I did it myself. I had to boost yeah. up myself. People only yep. invested afterwards when they were like, oh, okay, she's, mm-hmm. you know, all right, she's, she's doing well. And I told you just last Friday before, just the Silicon Valley Bank was imploding, I was reaching out to investors about fundraising. I was like, okay, I <laughs> guess that's not happening. You know, so there's so many of these panic moments. Yeah. You know, where you're like, oh my gosh, but that's the way it is everywhere. That's the way it is. And like how completely ridiculous it is to like not just have the challenge of building a business, but also have the challenge of building a business with like a crisis coming at you, you know, every other day, it sometimes seems like. Yeah. But I do think. You know, to your point around empowerment, I feel pretty bulletproof at this point. Not that it's going to be easy. I feel bulletproof that I will be able to figure it out together with our team. You know what I feel? It depends on the day you catch me. There's some days that I am insanely optimistic and hopeful, Mm -hmm. right? Those are really, really beautiful moments. And then there are other days where I'm like, I'm not even thinking about the future. I'm just thinking about the now. Yes. Right? Because in those big moments, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it's all pie in the sky. But then mm-hmm. there are, most of the other days, I'm like, okay, but have you fulfilled this PO? Have you done this? Yes. You need to send this. Yes. You need to update this. I'll give you this. 100%. So I just grind it out with excellence. Like, I feel like excellence is not perfection. Excellence mm-hmm. is like a way of life. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things I'm learning myself that there are people who are excellent and there are people who are not. And mm-hmm. I can't work with people who are not excellent. It's, it's really an approach. It's an approach to business. It's an approach to your work. It's an approach to the outcome. And so I'm just focused on being excellent all the time at mm. the least number of things. I love that. I feel that my teammate Zane always says, and he's he's quoting somebody else, I forget who it is, but he always says, excellence is a habit, not an act. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a way of life. It's something you can't teach, mm-hmm. you know, and you can really observe it quite easily. 
And it's so funny. As I mentioned earlier, I have three young children and I'm trying to teach them excellence, right? And it's in the little things of like, if you take cereal out of the drawer, like when you're done, roll the thing, close it up, put it back, shut the door. Like that's excellence, right? It's the little thing. It's the attention to detail. Anyway, who knows? I hope they learn it. (laughs) Oh, they will. With you as their mom, they will. You know, as you look back over the last several years of building Bossy Cosmetics, is there a moment that that you reach for? Like when it's hard, are there moments that you reach for to draw pride and strength and energy from? Like wins that you had, times when you got back up, you know, moments where you were just tough and courageous and did the hard thing and it worked out. Will you share one or two of those memories where they just shine like a light for you? So here's the one thing. I am incredibly spiritual and I have become even more spiritual since I started Balsy Cosmetics. I'm a Christian, have been for several years. And I think that my spirituality is what has really helped to shape my results. And so when I have these really crazy moments where I think, Something's not going to work out, or even cases where it hasn't worked out. I told you, I do my crying. And, and part of my crying is like, God, why did you let this happen to me? You know, I go through that whole thing. And then I remember the last time I cried. I forced myself to remember the last time I cried and what happened. So I'll give you, you asked for an example, a perfect time. Is it last in the summer before last? We won this competition called the Big Find on QPC, and they had placed this big order. And we had done the first customized collection we had ever done in our lives. And so my design team and I put everything into just new packaging, upgrading everything, new colors, just, I mean, ooh. and then I'm sitting on all of my suppliers, like, I'm crazy. Like, get this out, we got to get this out, we got to ship it, get this. I am manic. This is all I did two summers ago. And then um, ship it to my third-party logistics provider. I'm like, okay, guys, I send them the booklet for how to fill to QVC. They tell me they know what they're doing. I'm like, okay, great. Okay. So now I'm excited. This is a big win for us. I'm going to debut on live TV. It's let's say it's on a Tuesday. So Friday, we were like literally Friday at 4 p.m. is the deadline to get the goods in. Like we had to ship from Europe. Air freight costs a bomb, but let's get it in. Friday at like 5 p.m., I get a call from the, the guys at QVC telling me we failed the delivery, that the third-party logistics provider that we used did everything wrong. All the barcodes wrong, everything, everything, everything wrong. And so, sorry, but you're not going to go on air. Don't know when you'll go on air, if you'll go on air, but you're certainly not going on air on Tuesday. Now, this is Friday at 5 p.m. Okay, had a few investors. I have shared the good news with them. Oh my God, we won the big bundling. Then I also told them, guys, I'm putting every red cent of the company into this QVC experiment, right? Like, because when we're, we're going to get to meet millions of people in their households, we've got to do this right. So all the money in the company is going in. And then I had just emailed them that morning to say, today, everything's been shipped. I got the okay from the shippers. We're showing up on Tuesday. This is the time to show up. I think I literally left my house and went to cry on the street. (laughs) I never cried so hard. It was awful. Part of the crying was, God, how could you do this to me? Like from the 
competing to win, I prayed. From the winning, I was grateful to you. From the making the huge investment in this thing, everything. Okay. Anyway, long and short of it is, I cried the whole weekend. This was more than 24 hours. I literally cried the entire weekend. On Monday morning, I'm like, boom, let's get to work. Long and short of it is, I find a new party, have to ship the goods. It cost me twice as much to fix it, to do everything. So this is on Monday, right? I've told you this is on Monday. I'm just like, you got to fix this. You got to fix this. Company's going to go bankrupt if you don't fix this. I'm focused Monday. I'm focused Monday. Tuesday, I'm focused. Tuesday, Wednesday. I get a call that we're picked as one of Oprah's favorite things. Bethany. Like, no. I swear. I swear. So for me, I tell people, I mean, luck is key, but you have to be ready to meet luck. Right. And if I had just accepted that you have failed and cried, 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 and like send me back my stuff, I would not be talking to you today. On that Monday, I was like, who do I need to pay? Who's going to fix this? I don't care how much it costs, but the last red sense of this company, I will fix this. I was focused on fixing. And then three days in, I get the call that changes the company's trajectory. This is the moment. So when I have some low down, crazy moments, I remember the last time I had that nasty cry and something changed. And this has happened a few times in the company's life. Oh my gosh, that is such a great story. One of my one of my mentors is General Mattis. And I think he's also quoting somebody else. I don't know who, but in his book, he had this comment that was something like, when luck taps you on the shoulder, make sure you're ready. And you were ready for Oprah. <laughs> Girl. Let me tell you, I stay ready so I never have to get ready. I love it. That is that so is awesome. me. Since then, <laughs> I'm like, I'd say some, some, some of the moves now, like we just went to this office, so I'm setting up a brand new office. And of course, before I set, rented the office, I was like, do you need an office? Should you? You're spending money for that. But I'm like, no, because this year we're getting into a thousand stores. I don't have a thousand stores, but I planned it. So I'm like, yes. this, I'm building the business I need. So I'm like, you got to take the risk. You got to take the risk. Yep. And you've got to be ready. So once I get those extra 400 stores, I'm now ready. I have mm. a warehouse. I have everything. You're ready to go. That's so awesome. Aisha, you've spoken about the importance of cross-cultural experiences. You talked about African Her Story. You talked about working across Goldman and Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley and then you were at Stanford, and now you're building your business. Those are also examples of multicultural experiences in your career. Will you talk to us about how working with different communities, working with different people, working within different environments, and being able to bridge those has impacted your career and your values? I think that being a Black woman in America is an exceptionally trying <laughs> life. And I, from the very beginning, you know, as an undergrad at Cornell, you know, I always saw that I was a super minority at the intersection of minority. And I knew that that could either be an impossible task for me, or it could be my secret sauce. I can make it my superpower. And so I decided the latter, that I was going to make it my superpower and that I was going to create a career and a life that was really fungible anywhere, that you could kind of drop me anywhere and I would have a reputation of 
She's the person who wants to get the, the job done. She's very solutions oriented. She can work across different jurisdictions. You know, she's very respectful of different cultures. She's not going to come in and say, oh, this is the way we do it. You know, like I wanted to develop that reputation. And so I built that life. You know, my very first job at Goldman Sachs was on the international trading desk. It was working with Asian shares, working with Latin American shares desk. You know, as I said, I worked at the World Bank. I covered Central and South America. In fact, my mentor was a German guy who told me, do not work on deals in Africa because you are African. Work on deals in other markets that are growing. And so I focused on South and Central America and had to learn Spanish and work with local municipal governments that were trying to finance municipal deals. You know, worked in Asia, worked in Europe, as I said, like worked everywhere, including Sub-Saharan Africa. And so I've always found it to be a superpower for myself. I think it's a superpower for all of us, but everyone, you know, has to carry the cross that they've chosen for themselves. And I tell my children this as well. We spend every summer in a different country, learning a language, learning a culture, and really becoming very adaptive to new things because that's the world that we're in. And so I've been blessed. I was, you know, I did my master's at Harvard Business School, you know, best friend from Jordan, from Taiwan, from, you know, from wherever. And then that's why diversity is so important, I think, in work groups, in companies, because the diversity in thought from the diversity in backgrounds and perspectives just makes a beautiful result. You know, my closest companion in my own company is a, a Parisian lady. And we work so beautifully together. I mean, I really consider her, she is a core part of this brand. And I think that that's the way I've always looked at life. I love that perspective. And it also reminds me of something that one of my friends and classmates from college, her name is Annie Lou Vasquez. She's a partner and I think CHRO at TPG. And I just interviewed her for the Breakline Arena. And she said, there's something to be said for being memorable in the room. You know, just kind of connecting back the dots to your comment around that this is part of my superpower, you know, and really leaning into it that way. Manny Medina, who's CEO of a company called Outreach, was on the Breakline Arena as well. He grew up in Ecuador and then emigrated to the U.S. and he's built this amazing company. But he talked about trying to shed his accent as part of his transition to the U.S. and then ultimately realizing, actually, people remember me. <laughs> Because this sets me apart in a differentiated way and I can use that to my advantage. Yeah. So I think there's something beautiful about that. And then also to your point around your Parisian colleague who can see the world in a way that's complementary perhaps to how you see it and how that gives you all 360 degrees, you know, and an ability to problem solve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really, and it's funny because Stephanie, she reached out to me when we first started the company. She's like, I've heard about your company. I love the ethos. I researched about you. I think you're brilliant. I think your products are ugly. I think that you have such a great idea, but everything, your website's ugly, your products are ugly, everything's ugly. Of course. Oh my God. She's a totally. (laughs) Total French, right? And I'm like, who's she? How dare she? And, but she gave like detailed views on the ugliness, like the logo, the gradients off, the color of the book, but she gave detailed views and then unsolicited email. And so I read the email and then I can't sleep for a few days. I'm like, oh my God, everything she said is right. So I call her up, I'm like, I'm coming to Paris to meet you. And that's four years ago. We've been working together ever since. But her perspective, right? She worked for Givenchy, for Lancôme. She has this, like she gets packaging design. She gets aesthetics. She gets it 
in a way that I don't. So I can bring vision. I can bring so many things. And she brings so many other things. That when we are together, it's so complimentary. And so that's what I'm constantly looking for. Now, my husband, you know, I'm originally from Nigeria. My husband's also originally from Nigeria. So there's a lot that we, but we're, we could not be more different as people, right? So there's a lot that we have shared cultures, shared values, but there's a lot about us that are different. And so I think that's always been my superpower is finding commonality amongst people of different backgrounds. How can we find points together? And there's some people that you can never find a point with, but most of us, there's so much commonality. Yeah, I totally agree. There are two points within that, that those stories that I wanted to come back to. The first is it hurts sometimes to hear the truth, you know, and Stephanie was telling you her version of the truth of all these different creative aspects of your brand at the time. In order to improve, in order to progress, in order to proceed as a business and as an entrepreneur, you have to be open to the truth. Because if you're not, no one's going to tell you what they actually think. And that's to your detriment. Can you talk about, you know, enabling that for other people, like being someone who is open to feedback? And I know that this sounds like it should be easy. It's really not, you know, because feedback can hurt. But I just think like this is a key success factor as an entrepreneur in building the business that you want to build. It's interesting. So feedback is 100% critical. You have to understand where the feedback is coming from and always put it in context though. So I read every customer review that comes through and our products, I think are an average of like 4.6 to 4.8 stars or something. So our products are well-liked, but there are people who will give us a one <laughs> and they will, this lipstick did this, this lipstick did that. There are also some people which you've got to listen to it, you've got to read it, you've got to understand their perspective. There's also people on the same exact product will give two different views. This is so dry, this is so moisturizing. This is so red, this is not red enough. On the exact same product, right? So the key is to almost step back from feedback and take a very fresh perspective on what can I learn from this, right? Because if you only take the bad feedback and react to that, you may lose something really important about your product, right? Because I think that point of views are critical. Some point of views are so strong, but they're not for everyone. So you have to decide who are you, who is your brand, and who is your customer? You can't please everyone. And so if you have someone who gives a certain type of feedback, but is not your type of customer, maybe to say, that's okay, they think that, I'm not going to change this. And then there's other parts of feedback that you're like, we got to fix that. <laughs> we have to fix that. Like we had one packaging feedback where somebody was like, okay, this bottle is really pretty, but the gradient obscures the color of the lipstick. So I can't tell what the lipstick looks like. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. It's really beautiful, but it's not functional. It actually costs us more to make it so beautiful. So let's make it cheaper, but make it more accessible to people for what they want. So there's a lot of really simple stuff that you will learn from feedback, but then there's also feedback you know, I got feedback from someone who worked with me on something. And it was very interesting because it made me really think. I had to force myself to remove ego from the process. So she had been working with us and feedback she had given me, or more like criticism, I would say, was that I was not giving her enough of a leash to do what she wanted to do, right? Like I was basically telling her exactly what I wanted her to do. 
it really, I tussled with it for the weekend because I was like, I appreciate it, but it really made me think, is she correct? Right? Is she correct? And so sometimes I think in the end, I ended up telling her that I get what you're saying, but what you need to do is to get me to a point where I can trust you to do things on your own. You have just started. You haven't given me any indication to know that you are trustworthy for me to give you work to do to go off on your own, right? This is literally my baby. So you are new on this team. I'm not going to give you my baby and say, bye, see you later. Let's see what comes up with it. I did have to ponder on that for a while. So I think you need to hear the feedback and you need to step back from it and say, okay, what can I do with this? Yeah, it's such a good point. I think having the accessibility for people to share what they're thinking and also the confidence to parse through it for what you know makes sense as an action item and, and what doesn't, I think is so important. Aisha, I know we're coming up on time. And I just, as a final question, wanted to weave through a couple of threads and narratives that we've covered today. And I'm thinking about women who really want to start their own companies. And there are more and more of us, but there still aren't enough, partly because of funding challenges, but also I think because of confidence challenges, maybe because of network challenges. So in thinking about women who would love to be founders, thoughts and inspiration that that you have for them. And I want to go beyond like a very humble response that I often get is I was just really lucky. You and I have talked about making your own luck and putting yourself in a position to be lucky, but founding a company and succeeding as an entrepreneur goes beyond luck. You know, and so yeah. some of those like pragmatic choices that you made and decisions that you made that other people can replicate in their own scopes. That's what I'm looking for here as sources of inspiration for other women who really want to build their own ventures. So that's interesting. One thing I'm coming to terms with is that being a founder is such a unique experience. Mm -hmm. If you had not been a founder yourself, or you are not married to a founder or super close to a founder, you cannot imagine the emotional roller coaster you're going to go. And so forget, I'm not even talking about money yet. I'm just talking about the emotions of the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows, right? And so I would almost say for women, you know, first of all, if you want to be a founder, you need to set up like a core group of people who really love you, like who really like you and who really want you to win. And that group could be two or three people, by the way. I'm not saying it's 15 people. But you need to go to them and say, I need you to be not only my cheerleader, but I need you when I'm going through the best to hype me up or remind me to take my wins, remind me of my wins. And when I'm down to support me, that's the first thing I think you need to help on that roller coaster. Once you get that, I think that you should take small steps. If you recall what I said, when I first started the company, I thought I could raise money. You know, all the investors I spoke to told me, ha, 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 get out of here. So that didn't work out. So I was like, okay, we're going to do this on our own. So I started very small. I would order 25 of this color, 10 of this color, 50 of this. I looked for very small MOQ partners to work with, and I started the brand. I did all the social media of the company. I was doing all the posting. I was reaching out to influencers myself. It was all super, super DIY. And then as you grew and you grew and you grew and you grew and you started to really read the data, 
Like, what is the market saying about your product? Where is the data showing you you're going? And then reinvest from there. So that's what I would say. I would say start small. Get the emotional support that you need. It is a very wild and violent ride, but it is joyous as well. But you need people to support you on the up and on the down. And then, you know, just go for it. You have to think about never invest more than you can lose. And what is the worst that's going to happen? I mean, if you're starting like an aircraft flying business, maybe that's a little bit more challenging because you could die. But, you know, worst case scenario, I had a lawsuit and I lost, if I had lost the lawsuit, I'd shut the company down. But I still would have learned so much in this process. And I wouldn't have really failed because I gave it a go. So my advice to women is get the emotional support you need and start small and go out there. And let me tell you one of the things, like I now DM people, I do cold emails, I tweet to people, I do whatever to get what I need. Just do it. I love that. Aisha Dozier, founder and CEO of Bossy Cosmetics. What a treat to have you on with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me, Bethany. It was really great. Thank you for the questions. Made me think quite deeply on a lot of this stuff. Made me even have, I shuddered remembering the day I was weeping and wailing on the street on the QVC thing. So it's been a privilege to build this company. And I'm, I'm just hoping in the next four years, it's a completely different company as well. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.